Welcome back to Owned and Operated, where we dive deep into the businesses we own, the businesses we are acquiring, and we also bring on guests to talk about their operating struggles. If you like what you hear today, follow Brandon and John on Twitter. That's John at Wilson Companies and Brandon at Brandon Nero. Also, check out our website where you can find all the other cool stuff we do. For example, we're launching a newsletter on ownedandoperated.com. That's ownedandoperated.com. Check it out. All right. On this episode, we talk to Furcon Use. Furcon runs a $5 million flooring business, and he has the most interesting operations you'll ever see. Furcon's team operates at twice the speed of their competition because of a geographic arbitrage unique to their business. Furcon is also an expert at one, finding good crews for work, and two, keeping them satisfied and happy enough to keep working together over the long term. If you want a masterclass in the flooring industry and just outside of the box thinking, this episode is a must listen. Enjoy. If you listen to our show, you know that we can spend months sourcing businesses, talking with them, negotiating LOIs, conducting due diligence, all for a deal to fall through at the finish line. Microacquire solves that whole problem, whether you're buying or selling a business. As a seller, you're getting introduced to over 50,000 trusted buyers with total anonymity. As a buyer, you get to sort through profitable, vetted sellers and close in 30 days. We don't own any digital businesses yet, but over the next year, we're intending to grab a couple, and Microacquire is going to be our choice for a sourcing platform. All right. Welcome back to Owned and Operated. Today, we have Furcon Use with us with Elevation Flooring. I've been following him for a little bit. We disagree on residential being the best, but we can dive into that <laughs> later. How about you introduce yourself and take about a minute and talk about what you do? Hi, everybody. Thanks, John and Brendan, for having me on. I'm Furcon Use. I'm the owner of Elevation Flooring. I'm the president there. We're a commercial flooring company. We specialize in carpet, LVT, tile, polished concrete. And, you know, we consult on pretty much anything on the floor. So leveling, moisture mitigation, we'll do all the prep and everything like that too. We work for all different types of businesses. A lot of our business comes, you know, banks, schools, nonprofits, apartment complexes, hospitals, warehouses, lots of government work. Mostly renovation, about 70% renovation, 30% new construction. And we get after it every single day. My goal today with everybody, I want to just be real about the whole the process of becoming an entrepreneur and what it really takes and you know not the full glamour that you see all over twitter so hopefully we can dive deep into everything and get something interesting for everybody yeah yeah i think so all right so brandon where do you want to start you want to start with elevation first or do you want to go with the twitter side we were talking about a little earlier well yeah so I, i'd be interested in diving a little bit deeper into like why you started it how the team is built, because you have a really unique setup with a secondary office that does engineering. And I think I think that'd be, so. well, maybe that's a little bit later then. Yeah, I want to dive into why you started it. And I'll just start with how the whole process started, you yeah. know, and how I did get into the flooring and all that. Let's get it. So originally, you know, I was in college for an economic, I'm an econ major, you know, so going through college, I knew I was always interested in construction, but I never, you know, I, I had no construction background. You know, all I did, I think the closest thing to construction was I sold tools at Sears. 
you know, while I was in college. Nice. I learned about wrenches and hammers and all that type of stuff, but I never really got into construction until I got an opportunity to be a translator on a construction job site. So it was the Watergate Hotel in DC, that famous hotel. Yeah. They were doing like a 400 unit renovation. They brought this crew in from Turkey. It was like some days, 40 guys, minimum 20 guys, but you know, doing 500 bathrooms, the craziest lobbies, the craziest wedding rooms and, you know, really high end stuff. So once the project started progressing, they realized that they were having some communication issues on site with the crews. So they hired me to be a translator between the crew and the GC. So I was for my junior year of college, I spent four months at the Watergate hotel with, you know, this whole crew every single day. So I really got a chance to see the ceramic side of everything, you know, of the construction business. So, you know, we were doing real, real tile work and I was spending time with the guy all day. And most importantly, what caught my eye is I was translating meetings from the owner of that tile company. So this guy has been in the country for 20 years and he still needed a translator in these meetings that he was going into. So he, he was doing million dollar deals. He didn't even know English and he really didn't care to learn it or, you know, it, it wasn't that big of a deal for him that he didn't speak English. But what this guy did was he just brings guys from Turkey and puts them on fat, fat work, man. Like, you know, right. We were there on right across from Trump tower, like two months ago and they travel all across the country. So, but while they were in DC, I had this opportunity to learn about the business right on site. So it was like, I took it because I was looking for a job, but then I really, I saw how easy this guy was making money. So that's, that's what caught my attention. Can we dive a little bit, like, I guess even farther back, Mm -hmm. how is it that you were a translator? Like, are you from Turkey? I'm Turkish. Okay. So like, sorry, I'm a Turkish person. So I was actually born in Ankara, Turkey, and I came to the United States when I was 10 months old. Okay. And so around one and I've been fluent in Turkish my whole life. So that's how I got the job is because I I knew Turkish and English. Okay. So that's why being bilingual has honestly opened so many doors for me. It's made my business a lot easier because, you know, there's a lot of Turkish people in the construction business. Mm -hmm. So like your whole family moved? Yes. Okay. My whole family moved and yeah, I was one. Yeah. So is it okay if we just spend a minute? I am always fascinated by immigration stories. I think it's cool. I yeah. just think it's so cool. I mean, yeah. it's cool. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about that? So, I mean, my mom's a nurse. My dad, he was in public work. So, like, he didn't have a crazy great job or whatever. But so we, we left Turkey. And then, I mean, they got a green card. They had somehow from the lottery, my parents won the green card. And we came to the United States. My dad, you know, he went to school. My mom was a nurse. They're doing well now. But us growing up, we you know, it was nothing crazy, you know, and I pretty much, I learned how to be an entrepreneur for my mom because she's just such a, she's always been such a go-getter and she's so confident and she just takes control of the room. And I could see it if she had a different opportunity, like maybe if she was here like me, you know, she would have been able to do way bigger things than maybe I was going to do. But I had someone like my mom that taught me a lot in life. And then my dad is this extremely stable kind of nerdy guy who's, you know, really into like literature and poetry. And, you know, he writes po- like, you know, he writes books and stuff. So my dad has nothing to do with construction either. But so my whole life, I knew I was going to do business. You know, I always knew I was going to make a business like, you know, watching Shark Tank and watching all those things. It seemed so straightforward to me, you know, how a business should function. So I always knew 
that I was going to do something on my own one day. But so my parents, my dad went to school again. So, and then he was, he's an engineer. He works at Metro. So my dad's been an elevator technician for 20 years and my mom's a nurse and yeah, now that's awesome. (laughs) I mean, that's awesome. And do you have any siblings? Yeah. I have one younger sister. Okay. And she came over. Well, I guess she was born. Yeah. You came in. Yeah. She she was born here and her (laughs) life, her life was just totally different than mine. You know, she was, she's like 10 years younger than me. Oh yeah, sure. So she came when everything was getting better in all of our lives. So yes, but I have a little sister also. Oh man, that's cool. That's cool. I love a good immigration story. That's that's awesome. Okay. Are you a citizen now? And is the rest yes. of your family? Okay, sweet. Yeah. I was I became a citizen, I think, when I was like eight or something. All right. So is the process different for a child than I met a family that adopted like five or six kids from Russia. And they, I thought, had to go through almost the same process that adults have to go through for citizenship, which is exhaustive. Like, did you have to do that at eight? You know, I honestly, I don't, all I remember is the celebration after. I don't remember the process of getting it. Okay. But I remember we were just really happy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. We have a couple immigrants in our company. One was a Bosnian refugee from the genocide in the 90s. And then... One is, it was two people displaced by genocides, which is kind of interesting. And then the other one was from Nepal. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. All right. Well, man, I really appreciate you sharing that. I love a good immigration story. That's awesome. Okay. So you knew forever you wanted to start a company. You're hungry, watching Shark Tank. You got introduced to big, big work because of this really unique opportunity, it sounds like. And you were from Baltimore. So DC is like close enough. That's when I was growing up in Gaithersburg, around Gaithersburg, Maryland. Okay. But yeah, now the business is in Baltimore. Okay. But I went to college close to Baltimore, so that's why I'm here now. But I was closer to D.C. before. Yeah. All right, cool. So walk us through what happened after, like, you're like, oh my gosh, these guys are doing huge projects. Yeah. What happens next? So what happens next is, man, I, I see, I really see the opportunity, but, you know, I had the struggle. I was like, how can I do this? You know, how could I do this on my own? You know, and it's really hard when you have nothing. So I, I did what a lot of people do. And I found four jobs at four other flooring companies <laughs> within the next two years. So before I started Elevation Flooring, from there, I went to set sales. So I sold flooring. Then I went into project management. So then then I, I went back to doing what I was doing. But I was doing, again, bigger work, managing crews, managing multiple projects. So I wasn't on site, but I was project managing. And is this all still commercial or did you dive in? Yeah, all commercial. Okay. I, I never, you never touched. Yeah, I never actually, I did while I was selling, what I was selling is I was selling apartment complex renovation contracts in Baltimore. So that is residential kind of, but, and yeah, and there's nothing wrong with residential, <laughs> <laughs> but so later on, while I was project managing at my company, I kept thinking, I was like, man, I keep seeing all of these, I don't want to say losers, but people who only small businesses who aren't, you know, and there's nothing special about them, you know? So that's, that's what I was like. I really need to do this. I'm broke. I have no money, you know, and I was saving up. So, you know, one day I looked at the person that is the estimator at the company I was working with. I was like, dude, like I was slowly convincing my ceramic company to start doing floor. Right. So we started doing a couple projects and it was really hitting it off. And I was like, dude, it's like, they really, like, they're going to do this flooring company and like, we're going to build them this flooring division for no reason, you know? So 
you know, back and forth. And he was like, dude, it's so hard. You know, the, the stuff that you need to go through the money, like funding the projects, you know, there's a million reasons not to do it, but us two, we came together and we're like, okay, you know what, we're going to do this. And we were going to leave with just us two. And then as we're doing a couple more flooring projects, I meet this third person who from another old foreign company, I know he was his older brother. So he did big work, big jobs. So like he, I had this foreign contract, like foreign job. It was like 300 yards of carpet, like 700 yard, like square feet of LVT or it was something that's a two day job. So this guy, he comes in and he blows it out in one day. And I'm like, Holy shit, man. I've never seen, I've never seen a crew that works like this in my life. I've never seen him work so fast. I was like, you should start a foreign company. And he's like, man, he's like, yeah, I'm tapped out right now. Like, I keep running around. I'm doing a lot of jobs, you know, but I, I can't get to the next level. So I was like, perfect. So within five minutes of meeting that installer, my partner, Ray, I called my, uh, my other guy from my other company. I'm like, Hey, I found the third person. I found the guy, like we're quitting. And then two days later I quit that company. I just said, fuck it. And I just, I quit. So I made this extensive business plan. I make multiple business plans but I made this extensive business plan about specifically what we wanted to do. And it looked nothing like the way elevation flooring is today, but <laughs> I sent it, I sent it to them both. And I was like, look, we didn't even think about the name. We were like, this is American flooring. You know, so you, everybody thinks Americans a, a good name, sure. American flooring. And this is the business plan. Are you in? I was trying to convince them to do this, you know? So as, as someone who's, if you're broke and you don't have shit going on, you better at least, link up the right people in life with each other, you know? So I was like, look, I have this other guy. He's the estimator. Let me bring in the jobs and Ray, you just blow them out. You know? So everybody was like, okay, sounds good. So I quit first. We all put, we all took $2,500 out of our account. I remember I had, I had like $4,200. I had $4,200 and we took each took out $2,500 and put it into this bank account. Okay. We, so we went to bank of America. We opened this bank account, $7,500. We put it into the bank account and it's called elevation flooring. And we split the company up. Okay. Then this is, I paraphrasing the part where we got the name and everything, but so we went, we (laughs) recreated elevation flooring. And then the first thing we did is just, we got a lease, man. Okay. So this is like December of 2017. We just got this lease in this office. That's maybe like 10 by 20. It's just this room. And it's on like the seventh floor of this office building. And it's in Hagerstown, I mean, in uh, Hyattsville, Maryland. And I'm the only one that quit my job. And it's this big room. There's this one desk in there and it's just me. And all I'm doing there is I'm writing, I'm writing all my ideas. I'm writing more. I'm calling general contractors and I'm just trying to find work, man. So the first two months, mind you, Nelson hasn't quit at this point. So, so for, for the first two months, two months it was... Like I woke up every single morning and I went into this empty office by myself. All right. What what did you do about I mean you had seventeen hundred dollars to your name. Did you take comp? Were you like how did you live? Dude, I didn't take it. And right. I lived with so my ramen parents. noodles. All right. All right. Yeah. All dude, right. I, dude, if you have somewhere to stay, man, it's my girlfriend powerful. held me down, man. My girlfriend, I stayed at her house like five days a week. I stayed at my parents' house on the weekends, you know, and Dude, it just like it just happens, man. You know, you just you can't think about that shit. If you start thinking about that and you start thinking too much, the unknown is so scary. You know, the unknown people make the unknown 
a bad thing. And that's kind of something that I want to talk about that makes an entrepreneur truly successful is the unknown should be enticing and exciting to you. If you don't know what's going to happen, you have to think the best scenario, be prepared for the worst, but think the best because the best thing, what gives me a high is finding those jobs, man, the new jobs that I had no idea about that you just get that just keep you moving forward. But so two months I'm living with my parents. I live at the office. Dude. I'm paying, we get this office at $700 a month. So I'm there all day. And then, you know, you buy two a jar of peanut butter. I remember we had a jar of peanut butter and a jar of jelly and the huge, this huge loaf of bread. And I would just make like three sandwiches a day. I swear it was the last <laughs> thing I was thinking about. You know, it was the last, yeah, I was great. like, that's the last thing I was thinking about. So I was, I came into this, I come into this office and, you know, just, start trying to call apartment complexes to try to do the same thing I was doing at that company, you know, and I realized that that just wouldn't work. So we Wait, why would that into, not work? Well, I didn't even have a warehouse. I didn't have a carpet cutting company. Like I didn't have anything. I couldn't manage okay. an apartment complex account. So because it's like too much volume too soon. Yeah. It's too much, too much okay. volume. The margins are, the margins are lower and to really do, to do, and to be in that multifamily flip business, you have to have at least 10 to 15 accounts. You should have a warehouse guy and you should have a sales guy and you should have a lot of, what's the right word for a lot of crews that you could just throw at it. You should just have a lot of crews, not really too focused on quality, more so manpower. So it it was just a business that couldn't fit for us. So we decided to shift a little bit. We do a little more of what we do. Hopping into commercial and pre-qualifying with general contractors, going through their lists, you know, and they have all these requirements, filling them out, halfway filling them out, LinkedIn. You know, I was just on, I remember, man, I was on LinkedIn just all day, all day, just messaging project managers for big jobs. Just, I was trying to get like a million dollar job. You know, I was like, man, I had the crews for it. I had the people for it. Like, look at my partner. He does such big work. Like we could do it, you know, and just kind of running in place. You know, when I look back, it was just really stupid. Not stupid, but you, it's just a learning. I was doing the wrong thing. So, right. so what was the right thing? What would have been the right thing? The right thing to do at that time would be to just go out and just get business, to just get anything I could get in flooring, to get a couple residentials, to get a couple commercials, just do any flooring for anybody. My idea, the way that I was going to do it, I signed up, like go in there, sign up with your vendors, know the different type of vendors that could supply you with different things. So what was important for me was someone that could hold my carpet for me in their warehouse. So I could buy it and then I could send my installer to the vendor to pick up the carpet. So I, I didn't have a warehouse. So that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to have, some people don't let you hold stuff. Some people hold it for 30 days. So I was just working with a company. I think it was Mohawk back then that was holding, you know, some LVT for me, I saw what they had in stock constantly. And I tried selling what they had in stock already. So I didn't have to hold it. So dude, I think it took us three months, three months to get our first job. Okay. So imagine burning through rent. We probably burned to, through $2,500, no new business. There's like probably like five grand in the bank account or four, four grand. Probably it's like March of 2018. And we get our first job, $1,600. Right. So we just pay for material on that. Obviously I'm not paying Ray for his labor, you know, or anything. So we take that $1,600. We'll put that right into the bank account. We're like, okay, two so, more months. So did on Ray table. do it? Like, was that like Saturday? Cause he still hadn't quit his job. Right. Yeah. But he's a contractor. Okay. So he just said, Hey, I'm booked that day. Yeah. And then, or 
you know, whatever it might be. He has a lot of guys, man. My opponent has like 25 guys. I'm into this. Like, this is like, I'm getting pumped. All right, keep going. All right, so you get 1600 bucks in the bank. $1,600 in the bank. We're like, fuck yeah, another three yeah. months. So we put that in the bank account. And then I don't know what, and I was like, I need to hire salespeople. Like, just add, like, again, like, I'm just like, I don't know what I'm doing. So <laughs> we bring on like, all, I bring on like three of my friends. I'm like, dude, come in here. I make them all business cards. And I'm like, okay, you guys are going to sell flooring. I didn't teach them about flooring. They don't know nothing about flooring. Send them. And they just, one of my friends stumbled into this apartment complex right in our old, by our old college. And we got a $42,000 contract. Holy crap. Second job. Second job. And it was at a 50% margin. Including labor? Yeah. All the right. profit margin was 20 grand off 40 grand, 44 grand. Yeah. All right. So that, good. that just changed a lot for us, man. I mean, the job again was really hard. Like right now it would be a breeze, but back then, cause it was 200 units, it was 50 square feet per unit. So that's why the margin was higher. It was just small work and doing, you could only do four or five a day. So that was our job. We started, we got draw number one there, you know, when that first draw, the first 50% hits your bank account, 20 grand in the bank account. And we're like, holy shit. It's like, okay, this is going to, this is going to happen. And you know, I'm again, just very minimal money. And that way the ball gets rolling. So then we're pre-qualifying more vendors are coming into our office and you know, man, I'll never forget, man. Like people talk so much shit to me in that beginning. Man. Like, like people who are OGs in this business, whose opinions I would respect were extremely disrespectful. And they just didn't think that this business would succeed. So many people said like, Oh man, I'm not opening an account for you. I'm not giving pricing to you. Like who are like, you know, you guys are just in this office. I already priced up 20 companies in your area. Why would I bring my own people competition? Like at least three, three people said that exact same thing to me. So just the same way that I'm dealing with shit now, I was stressed back then. I was like, man, is this going to work? Like, look at all these people, you know, they're always saying things to me. So the first thing I said about entrepreneurs, flipping the unknown to positives, the unknown can't be negative. And number two, you just got to be comfortable with being discomforted constantly. Anything and everything can happen at any time. So if you really let that shit get to you and you're not that leader and that motivator to everybody around you, you're going to lose even more money. (laughs) So you have to be at peak shape. So back, all those people were saying that stuff to me and, you know, we just kept moving forward, man. It's just, it's really, it really just comes down to showing up every single day. Just get to that motherfucking office every day and be in there, be there for every phone call, be there for every communication. Don't miss it. Don't work from home, you know, motivate people. You know, if you want to be an entrepreneur, every conversation you should have with an individual should motivate them between business hours. You know, you cannot come with some sad shit crying about everything. Anyway, so we're in that one office. We're in that one office. And then I meet this, like, I'm like, I need a warehouse. I need to find a warehouse. Like first you do the traditional method. Oh, reach out to all the commercial real estate companies in my area. Oh, can you guys help me? They're hitting me with rents like seven grand, eight grand, 10 grand. I'm like, yo, how the hell am I going to do this? Again, I was like, how the hell am I going to do this? So I just, we just start calling people. I'm like, Ray, you call everybody you know who has a warehouse. I call everybody we know that has a warehouse. We're like, hey, we can repay it in any way. You know, we can help you guys out in any way. Anybody who has any space. So we meet this guy who gives us the opportunity to, he's like, I need estimators. He's like, if you could do estimating for me, 
I'll give you a cut on this rent and you could use the warehouse. So he gave me a warehouse and an office for $2,500 a month. So then after there, we, we did this again, man, another whole struggle. I remember like doing the fit out, the paint, the flooring, trying to run the business, trying to get this new property ready. It was just such a struggle. Then we move into this new place and then we have a warehouse and a couple offices. And then that's where everything just went, man. We just, we focused a lot on estimating pre-qualifying. That's really the secret right here. If anybody's getting anything from service businesses, you have to just go and pre-qualify with 25 new companies a day. I work with like 200 general contractors that send me things. These people will send you the opportunities if you can actually provide a service. You don't need to go out and sell every single day. If you can price things up, get jobs with people, pre-qualify with them, create relationships. That's how, that's how this business went. So we hired like four estimators. Again, took no cut, no money. Me, Ray, and Nelson barely still take money, dude. <laughs> Literally. Like we, but anyway, we, we were just paying out all of our salaries. We were just estimating. And then we got, a, we got like Smoothie King. And then we got like a Pure Bar. And then we got, and it just, it started from there, man. And, Again, mistakes that we were making back then. I had some estimators working on huge projects and some estimators working on what we could actually do. You know, everybody knows the lane that you should be in. You need to just, if you're small, stay with small companies and kill it with them. Don't try to go mess with the big boys because they'll eat you a lot. You know, so you stay in your lane. If you're small, stay with the small people. Fight with the guy working out of his truck. So if you're one step above that, go for him. You know, say, hey, that guy can't supply you material. He doesn't have a warehouse. He doesn't have a project manager. You know, he can't buy material and hold, like, pay for it. You know, set your, set yourself apart from the weaker guy under you, you know, and always just take his business and then step, then step, then step. What did the pre-qualification look like? You know, like for our cut and drive, for example, pre-qualification with the insurance providers is like one year minimum in business. So you can't even mm-hmm. do anything with these guys until you've been in business for one year. And we had to go out and find things from other organic sources. How does it look like for you when you first started? You know, did you have to kind of, how'd you make your way into those pre-qualifications? I mean, honestly, man, like honestly, a lot of the references I had and I put down were jobs that Ray Ray did that that weren't our projects. You know, I kind of lied a little bit. Like insurance was a big issue for me. So I had to, I shopped around so many different insurance companies to get to the minimum qualifications or like, you know, whatever you would need. And then, you know, Again, when you qualify as a weak company, like it just, it kind of gets through, man. It really is like some of them are just, if you can get like, do like 70% of the pre-qualification, you get on the bid list, but you can't get a job till you get to a hundred percent. You know, so if you, I don't like some, some people I still don't work, like still work with. That's what I kind of mean. Stay in your lane. Like I'm right. I was a small corn company trying to work with small and mid-tier general contractors. Now I'm a mid-tier foreign company working with mid-tier and still small-tier general contractors. But I'm not going for the turn, well, Whiting Turners and the Davises and the Clarks and those really big guys yet because I know if, one, you got to always come right. You can't mess up anything that you do with these people. Like I could get into that a second. Account management is a whole, it's an art of a business. But you can't start off too high with these people. Always take the easiest work you can. And a lot of these jobs that you win with your first general contractor, it'll it'll be a solicited bid. So you got to go in tight as hell. If you're trying to make money on your first job with these relationships, they're not going to work. So 
going in tight, you know, going for the smaller projects, pre-qualifying somehow, man, just, you got to get in. If you have the insurance, you can get jobs. Like that's usually what the thing is for construction. So if people usually don't have the insurance and they legally can't pay you if you don't have insurance. So as long as you have insurance, like these GCs have small stuff, man. Like if you're really good with a, like in a good relationship with a project manager, he can send you any type of job. You know, he'll be like, Hey man, Ferg, I need you to go. Like, do you have anyone I could go send to like clean this thing? Like I need a body there to do this. You know, I'll send someone charge him $800. You know, I have that type of relationship with some people where they just need, need humans. They can go and do places. So I have, you know, when you're that new guy, do anything for these people. Go pre-qualify with army bases. If you're a U.S. citizen and you're, you have, you're an entrepreneur and you haven't called all the army bases in your area for anything that you could do for them because they don't do anything themselves. You have to pre-qualify with your army bases. I've done almost a million and a half dollars. I just signed a very beautiful contract last week with Fort Meade right, right next to us. So the U S government, again, go pre-qualify with them. So you can pre-qualify with, you know, just again, the people that you're very similar to don't try to go pre-qualify for Clark when you don't have a warehouse. I remember I was talking to Josh Schultz the other day and he said uh, basically the same thing, but he was like, do whatever it takes to get your first 20 million in sales. And like, it's probably going to look messy as hell. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then, then, then you worry. I think, you know, he was talking about a slightly larger company, but it looks messy as hell. But then once you get there, you can streamline, which, you know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got to just, again, show up every single day and just get the, get the projects done. Like if you're, I kind of, that's why I never tell people I'm an entrepreneur. What I do is I run a foreign company. Like, yes, that's, I am an entrepreneur, but what I'm good at, it's not business. What I'm good at is just getting flooring done. That's what I tell people. I might be good at business, but I'm your manager of flooring. Like I know all of these great people and I get this done for you. So that's what I always try to get people stuck in their head. Because if I do good work, that's all that matters. Yeah. If you're a service business, just do good work. You can still like, dude, you could be really bad at sales and you'll still get jobs. <laughs> like you can just be like, people call me. They're like, Hey, Ferk, you guys never bid this, but you know, we were about to release this other company, but I wanted to see if you could match that. You know, I get a lot of those type of phone calls where people just want to give me the last look on a project, even though I wasn't bidding it at all. And when you do good work, you just get people to call you back. Mm-hmm. That's what we just kept focusing on that year too, man. It's just getting a job and doing a really good job on it, getting a project and doing a really good job on it. And just doing more and more jobs. Yeah. So that was your first year, first couple of years, sounds like. Yeah, that was like a year and a half. Yeah, first. All right. So then you started, you sort of moved up the totem pole. Let's dive into the whole second office thing, because I think that's fascinating. Okay. Okay. So right now I was at this, the warehouse I was sharing. So it was a huge deal for us to, again, go get another warehouse. So now we're in our location we're in right now, 6,000 square feet. 3,500 warehouse, 2,500 office. And, you know, we made that transition over here. Again, extremely difficult, extremely difficult. These things, when you're working outside of your business and inside of your business, it's really hard and it's very normal for it to be hard. You know, if you're, if you really are starting from nothing, don't let cash flow stress you because if you let cash flow stress you, you're going to be stressed forever. But so it was really stressed to get into this office 
then we get into this office and again, I'm trying to hire estimators, you know, and I'm trying to find people that are good. I'm teaching people how to do this. So one of my big things that I tell people is if you're starting a new business, try to hire experienced people. Okay. Don't try to teach people stuff. If you have less than 10 employees, because like if you're trying to fill high quality positions with someone where someone senior should be by trying to compensate with two people that doing half a job, you're just going to have to replace those people and you're just losing money and losing time. So it was just really hard for me to find qualified labor that I could afford here. You know, at first that was the ambition. It was like, I'm, we don't have a lot of people. We could try to do this in Turkey and, you know, maybe save a couple dollars. So then th- that's how we started originally. Well, that was like our, our goal to just save money. But as time shifted on and like first they were all working st- scattered, but then, you know, putting them on true payroll in Turkey, like with insurance and taxes and putting them in our office and everything. Now it's not just all about the cost of it, you know? So the cost has pretty much not been the same, but I would say it's like 75% of what it would cost for me to have the people here. But why we kept pushing really forward is because the level of service we were offering was on a whole new on just a whole new level with all of our clients. So we were able to start doing things overnight, you know, so if a client needed something, we were able to just get it right back to them the next day, shop drawings. We started doing in our office in Turkey. And most importantly, we started just cranking out bids, man. So I have right now, I have eight estimators in Turkey and they work overnight. They're high level architects. And most importantly, it's not some outsourced business or a third party that I'm relying on to do these services. So a lot of my competitors have takeoff companies that they are like in India or Pakistan that'll just do quantity takeoffs for them. But what we do is we price up the whole project. So they have absolutely no difference from the estimators that I have here. They request pricing, they send pricing, they communicate with my clients, you know, so they're exactly like we would be, but in America, I mean, in Turkey. So how many, I want to dive into org chart for a second, just so I understand this. So you have mm-hmm. eight estimators in Turkey and you also have, how many do you have in America? So I have one, I have a senior estimator here in America. So he's on top. He's, well, I have a senior in Turkey. But then I have like a, a chief, I would call him. I have a chief here. Someone who's like at the very top who just does, who negotiates mostly. So I'll take bids that are coming back to us and negotiate them and put them in the pipeline. All right. I mean, that sounds like a ton yeah. of estimators. I guess that's the question. That's just... Like, how does an organization usually look? Like, how many total team members are there? How many people have to estimate? How many people project manage? Like, what does that So, I, I have eight people in project management in America that are just focused on operations. So, I used to have, like, I used to have, like, a bunch of dudes, man. I had, like, eight dudes working there, right? And I was just like, this is not working. So, then, <laughs> as we started, like, letting go of people and stuff and people were leaving... We started hiring like girls and they're just so much better at this whole thing, man. You know, so now, now, I, now I have like someone who's older, who's teaching two younger girls, like how to, you know, the construction business and like, and it's just, it's been such a dream, man. Again, like when you're with the wrong people, it just feels wrong. But so we have people in project management and then my partner, Nelson, who I was mentioned before, he is the bridge between project management and estimating. So my chief gives it to my partner. He cleans everything up and then he passes it to operations and operations just runs it. But okay. yeah, so eight, eight people here, eight people in Turkey and I have like probably 20 contractors. So all my people are 1099. 
about, I have three crews who I schedule like minimum 40 hour weeks for, like we, we keep a schedule like for them the same way we keep all of our other people. And yeah, we just, we're bidding. I mean, when eight, eight estimators is a lot, <laughs> it is a lot, you know, but again, it's, it's more like we were focused on numbers. So last year at the end of last year, we were like 15 million, 20 million a month that we want to estimate. We want to close 1% of that, 2% of that, you know, but we realized that again, I'm sending numbers to companies that I'm not getting jobs back the next tier up. People are using my services, you know, and giving jobs to other people because they know they'll get a bid from me. So we've really been honing down on the amount, but just focusing on the quality of bids that we put out. We don't make mistakes. You know, we make sure that everything is good. We don't bid the things that we don't do. So I love having eight people. I would hire another eight people tomorrow if I could afford it. So like, what do they, I guess being in a residential, I don't totally understand the dynamics of Mm -hmm. how the work happens. So are you getting like every day you get a hundred requests to bid in your email and it just gets divvied up to one of the estimators and you close very few, but they're big tickets. Is that the idea? Yes, exactly. So like, so our estimators, they're, they're, Bidding. So back to pre-qualify. Once I pre, when I say pre-qualify with the GC, that's getting on that email list for those projects. They I have. got you. So I have this bids at elevationflooring.com email and a bid coordinator on that. And all of the people that I have pre-qualified with, again, at least I would say who I pre-qualified with maybe 400 people, you know, so I pre-qualify and they just send me bids all day and we're picking and choosing through those what we want to deal with. Our most important criteria is location. So if a job is going down in Baltimore, I want to know about it, whether I'm doing it or not. Like I want to get on it as early as possible and I want to get my vendors on it. So I want to run Baltimore. That's rule number one. So anything in Baltimore, we're going in tight as hell and we're going to get it. So those major apartment complexes, you know, whatever it is, we're calling, we're communicating the whole way down. These bids take months, man. It'll take a year that you bid a project before you get it. But, oh, really? So, okay, Wow. Yeah. Like, I mean, if I'm bidding an apartment complex, I'll be budgeting that freaking thing for like two years. So that means you can really determine, that's kind of interesting because then you can determine your run rate for what, a year or two years out. Like you should have a relatively decent idea of what 2022 sales looks like. Because at that point, it's just fulfillment. Is that how it works? Yeah, like exactly. So that's why like I can't guess how it's going to be. I can't guess how it's going to be because it's not like that's what we're really trying to hone down those numbers. And we we paid a lot of attention to those statistics and how much that we're closing. So right now we're about a 6% close rate. So if I'm like that was for the years pre-COVID. So now I've been bidding twice the amount and it's post-COVID. So I just don't know how much money I'm really going to win. But if I'm doing a minimum 6% and this year we're putting out 130 million, 150 million, I want to do 6 million this year. Okay. I want to close 6% this year. So what's industry average for close rate? I don't know, man. I rarely think about other people doing this business because I've seen so many people do it wrong. I think I would rather do what I think is right and fail than try to copy what someone else is doing right and try to make my stuff go right. Because I've learned some really hard lessons in life, man, that if I didn't go through what I went through, I would have made multiple mistakes that later on I saw that like I needed to know, you know, back then. Because again, there's so many new scenarios that come up that everything that hits you sideways is a lesson. And like, I know that sounds like Confucius and some corny shit, but like, if you're really a young entrepreneur trying to compete with 45, 50 year old dudes in a business, 
you got to take those body shots, you know, because they did a long time ago. So what does running a tight bid look like? So right now, we usually bid around 20% margins. If I'm going in tight, I'm going in 18, 17%. And I'm keeping labor really tight. And So there's like very little room for error. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's very like, that's why, you know, estimators are so crucial. It's because I just need good quality people who don't miss things. I could care less about getting huge, huge numbers, you know, because I have a really, I have a sweet spot between 25 to $100,000 of carpet or LVT that I just do very well off. So, but if I'm trying to take a job that's $300,000 of ceramic, I'm going to struggle on that. 300,000 square feet of wood, I'm going to struggle on that. So I have a sweet spot of what I'm t- I tell my estimators to look for constantly. And it's really about when those budgets and those timelines are going to happen for these projects. So we have thousands of bids that are, I, I hope that are just sitting out there that are waiting for that approval to come in. That is really interesting. So we pre-qualify, pre-qualify, pre-qualify. 50 bids a day, 100 bids a day come in. We bid 10 of them. And, you know, oh, so I was talking about our criteria. Number one is location. So Baltimore, if anything happens in the city, we got to know about it. I don't even care if it has scoring on it. So I always tell all the GCs, anything in Baltimore, just send it to me so I can just know what's going on. Number two is what the vendor is. So one tricky part of this business that I had no idea about is that it's, people try to price control everything from the beginning. So a carpet that's, they choose it with the architect a year late before, and they want to make sure that I, as a phone company, buy that carpet that was picked. So going back to opening accounts and some vendors want to open accounts with me, this is why they were hesitant is because they were just trying to keep everything, you know, within the people that they knew rather than bringing in a new company to just bid on projects. But so like, Vendors, the second most important thing to me, the people that I ethically align with are the people who I do very, very well with. So I have some, like some architects, they take kickbacks from specking materials. So, oh, you put that, my lights in your job. You put my flooring in your job. You put my wallpaper on your job. The architect gets a cut of whatever they can get the client to pay for. And then they get a rebate. It's called rebate. It's not a cut. It's the rebate. So the companies that work with these rebates, they pay off the architects. I do really shitty with them. I can never get along with them because there's a lie somewhere in the communication with the client. They think they're getting value, but they're not getting the value that they think they're getting. So whenever I tried to just adjust my ways to working with like some of the hot vendors in my area, it just, it didn't work. But I have some other vendors who, you know, are a little more expensive, but they give a really good product and, you know, you can keep your neck high, your head high around them. You never have to regret your product. So ethically, who I align with my vendors. Third is the GC. So if I have a good relationship, like the general contractor is third, even if they win the project, do I have a good relationship with the general contractor? You know, and then four is scope, what it is, all that. But so I have four main criteria that I judge all the projects that I receive at. My bid coordinator pushes it out to everybody. We have like a couple of weeks to get the bids together. Then my chief negotiator, my chief estimator receives them. He negotiates them. He passes them to my partner. My partner smooths it out, gives it to my purchasing coordinator, my assistant project manager, my project admin, my senior project manager. They all have a meeting and the project just runs. Sounds like the process is relatively, so I'd say streamlined. It doesn't sound like there's a lot of dead time. Like the reason that it seems so streamlined like this, man. So when I first, when you first start a business, you have to 
when you first start a business, you have to, you have your business plans, you have your systems manual and you have your job descriptions. Okay. So your systems, your business is just your business and where it's going, what it's doing right now, what its advantages are now, how it's good. The second part, the systems manual is how the job is done. It's not a description of the job. So it's like, Oh, when you come into the morning, if you're the first person that opens this, you got to turn on all the lights everywhere. You got to turn on the warehouse. You got to do this. If you're the last person to leave, you got to do this. Oh, if, Oh, warehouse procedures to receive. So I've always had really, really rough drafts of positions, right? So I, I know every single thing that needs to be done. I have a Google drawing of it. So you, I sometimes I drag in descriptions over here. I drag them over here. I have different compensation packages with a lot of my people, you know, like the way that they make more money changes specifically for whatever their job is. Like, I think some of them, I'm really happy, like the way that, like I've seen so much better of production that I could never inspire with any conversations just by setting up an advantage compensation plan. But so the, the reason that it, it just seems streamlined is because I've had all these years of just descriptions and things and things that I keep adding on. And then last year is when we made our custom software. So we have a software that this whole process that I'm talking about is in our CRM. So you log into www.eflooringsystem/crm. You use our company login. All of our estimators work in there. They bid the project in there. They request pricing from in there. They send it from in there. And then when we win the job, the same project we go goes to operations. It's the same exact way that we bid it. And then those each turn into like a way that we control our warehouse. So every single line item that I'm I have in my thing, you know, I have flat red flags. Hey, this isn't in your warehouse. This isn't in your warehouse. You know streamline that and then it gets to purchase orders and work orders and like the software does a lot of people's jobs for them so if you if you have all of that stuff to go off of when it's time to create your software too it's going to be really freaking easy because you're going to know exactly how you need to build everything i have a question just really on that it's it's so i guess before i ask about the communication from your american team to your turkish team how did that idea start with having a second office over in Turkey. So the idea started is a lot of people came to me offering that service. Hey, we work with your competitors in the area. They use us and we and that way they don't have as many estimators as they need. They they get quantity takeoffs. So quantity is just knowing how much carpet, not actually putting in the pricing from the vendor, putting in your labor. They just do a tank and and I was like it's like, no, I was like, that's so stupid. Why would I, why would I do that? Like I emphasize that I know this job better than anyone else. How can I have someone else estimate it? So then my cousin, whose girlfriend at the time was an architect. I sent it to her. I was like, Hey, do you understand this? And then she was like, yeah, this is something. And you know, it was just an idea, man. It started again. It seemed extremely difficult. Like it seems like a good idea right now. Cause we're talking about it two years later, but for the six months trying to train random people, working in a different, their own houses and trying it just, it was, we wasted a lot of time and the estimators I had couldn't be as productive. The partners were like, Ferk, are you sure? Like, are you sure, man? Like, you know, at first the pay was top heavy. Like we were paying way more than we were receiving. Like, it seems like great investment right now. It's one to 10. So every, or one to even 50, I would say Turkey's investment. But back then we were burning money because we replaced staff, people that weren't working, people that were, you know, couldn't understand it. So now it seems like a good idea, but at the beginning it, it wasn't. You have a full-fledged office over there. It's not remote. Like they're actually in-house working. 
Yes. Yes. So that was a huge step for us. Like in the beginning of 2020, in the beginning of 2020, in January 1st, 2020, we signed a lease for an office there and then we brought everything in. And that was, that was what's been just so much better is because everybody's teaching each other. And like, cause it was really hard to teach the first couple people, but you know, we hit a stride in the, I go to Turkey for a month. I've been there for the last two years. So I was there all of January and, you know, spending like they're teaching each other. Now they're creating their own systems. They're trying to, they really, really care too, man. That's just like my favorite, favorite part. Like the people here, they just really don't care about like, I don't mean my, my, my people are great, but I'm saying like a lot of people are like, I get a paycheck. Fuck you. You know? And I've never been a person that's been like that. So like even that translator job, it's a, it was a lot of work and I got really shitty money, but I knew I was going to meet the people I need. And I've never had a job that paid me a lot of money for what I did. And I always knew I provided more to them, but this goes back. Like the people in Turkey really, they really feel like it's their business. Now. Like they work, like they work so much more than I asked them to. They work so much more than I asked them to. And they just, they're always asking, they're like, did that job ever come through? Did we ever win that? Meet like meanwhile, it doesn't affect them at all, but they always want to see pictures, they always want to see what's going on. I could see that they're striving to be a part of something bigger, and all of those people that I can get that feeling from, I hold on to so tight, you know, and I never let those people go. So, how does that look? You got a team over there that obviously sounds great, like you know, it's it's working Mm -hmm. wonders. How does that work now? We were talking about the software, that's kind of where it's leading with all that. Is how's the communication look? You know, your time zones are clearly very different. So how do you make that work with the business? So my cousin, so he's the C, like the boss there, right? So he's kind of our, like not a physical translator, but he's the one who gets the end of the day report, communicates. So it's a seven hour difference. So when we're coming in at 8 a.m., they're closing up their day. So we have, again, we have this, another piece in our software. It's this huge bid board, man. You know, every month there's a new bid board. And everybody's names go on there and they just have this big schedule that's constantly getting updated by my cousin. So he's the one, he's in charge of them, but he also looks through all the bids and picks it and assigns somebody to it. So now like my estimator here, he's literally only like doing the final check on it. So we don't even communicate really too much on the job, like until like it's time for negotiation, really a couple months like later. But so we have no communication problem and they're like, they just, it's the exact opposite. I ask them to do one thing and they go above and beyond more than I ask them to constantly. You know, I'm like, Hey, like this is like, this proposal looks great. Like maybe we could add a cover page to it. Next day I come back to work. There's like three different options of a beautiful cover page. Like, Ferk, what do you want to do? I'm like, guys, like, like, I love you. you (laughs) And seriously, like, so like there's, the more that they understand the business and I have a couple of veterans that are there with them who've been with us since the whole process. So two years now, since we started like remotely training people. So like, it's just, it's really about having like the people that fit right. Man. Cause again, if you hold on to those people that fit right, they do everything. Like they're, they're almost at a point. They're self self-sufficient. You're in the jobs you're dealing with and you don't have a lot of stuff that needs to be like instant turnaround, right? Like you're saying it was a month or two till you have to actually, start the negotiation no, process. On no, I, I do it, man. I do it. But again, instant turnaround is a huge red flag for us, man. Like this commercial is not an instant turnaround business. If you need something done instantly, that means you, someone fucked up somewhere. Seriously. And like, if it's a really tight, 
thing where it's like, Hey, if they're calling me right now and they need something on Monday, that's going to be a little, like we wouldn't do that. You know, like if you needed a bid back by month, actually, no, for some clients, we'll slice the earth in half for, you know what I mean? So it really just depends. Like if you're one of my top 10 clients, you get my best estimators. So I don't give my worst clients, my best people. I give my worst clients the newest people I have. And so they can make mistakes, but my best ones I give, you know, to my best people, great communication, you know, very clean bids. And, and then there, there's like multiple levels of check that go, like there is a, a whole hierarchy there of like, before my, my chief looked at it for three people look at it on top before their thing. So like it's, the bids usually come clean and there's usually time on them also. All right. Interesting. But you know, overall the whole strategy, pretty much my strategy is we're still hashing out a lot of things in the software. We're still adding a lot of things to it, you know, to perfect it, perfect the software to get Turkey to, to be capable to handle multiple branches of elevation flying. So I want to follow my vendors to where they're successful at. So like Philly, Houston, Miami, you know, again, send like, I think I would be the first pioneer to go to another branch somewhere. And, you know, once if, if I had the, now I've done everything without a budget, with no money, with, with all of that to go to a next city, hire the right people and to just put them on my software. And then all the estimating is in Turkey. So when we go into growth mode, you know, when, when we could be like one of these companies that get all this stupid funding for no reason and all this money for no reason, like I have an economic injury disaster loan and I have a $90,000 private loan and the rest is cash that we've, we've made. We don't have and, and fuck, an Amex that is maxed out every, like every 10 days, you know, seriously. And that's, and I have no, I don't know how we got this far just by doing it. Like I, that's why I think the unknown, you just got to do it. But once it comes to the time where we have that funding and I have like, the, if I had like, like Marcus Limonis, that one of my idols, if I could have someone who just one investor that could supply everything that I needed, like the money, the accounting, the taxes stuff, you know, that's what I'm really bad at. I need someone that can help me go to just take this whole thing global. Cause I, that's my goal within two years is I want to solidify everything in Baltimore. I want to do $20 million a year. And then I just want to open one or two branches, one branch a year, at least after that. And then that's why I think elevation flooring can be the first billion dollar flooring company. I don't see why it's so impossible. So have you, at the end of two years, these next two years, you're looking to find this another partner. Is that how it would look? You think my problem is I make a lot of money with cheap money. So if I can get some, if I can get money like under 10, 10%, I can flip that four times in a year. So if I get 200 grand and I have to pay 20,000 in interest a year, I could flip that 200 to 800 and then pay off that loan. That's what I've been doing right now. I've been producing so much cash. We don't take any money from the company and that's the way that it's been running. But if I was to take on one partner, it could just, it would have to be someone that I would give like 10%, 5% to that would fund all the projects that we have contracts for and help me expand to multiple cities. But I'm just looking for this, you know, big investor, man. Someone who, who's like, you know, like Kevin Plank is someone who's huge in Baltimore. I've tried pitching this guy 20 times 
and he won't get take a meeting with me, but, or like his people won't, his CEO won't or whatever. But, and I'm just looking, that's why like I go to the banks and I get like 80 grand at like 12%. I get 80 grand, and 80 grand ain't shit. That doesn't help me with anything. Mm. So it's just, I need, I need like $500,000 at 10%. And then that's when we will just be able to take over the earth. So the funding, just so I understand the funding is used to fund the projects themselves, right? Because you have to pay labor, you have to pay materials and all that stuff potentially six months before you get paid. Is that the idea? Yes, materials multiple months before I get paid. So if I'm using expensive money, I have a lot of options for expensive money. What I'm looking for is cheap money. But if I want to go expensive money and a job drags on for six months and I bought the material, then I end up giving up 5% of my profit on a project for no reason. Like I'd rather give a constant percent over the year to someone who's helping me expand rather than just give it to a bank for, you know, six expensive. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we were looking, we have an electrical company that we're preparing to work with. And it is interesting because usually we're COD in all of our home service stuff, but these guys do a lot of contractor work. So like their business has like dramatically different cash needs than anything that we're used to. Cause it, it sounds a lot like what you're into uh-huh. long receivables. Like I think 15% of their annual revenue was in their accounts receivables, which for us, Oh yeah. Like dude. 1% of revenue is in receivables. <laughs> no way. Is, is it cause it, a lot of it's residential? Yeah. I mean, it's COD. I mean, for a while there, we had negative receivables What? because <laughs> customer paid deposits and then, yeah. And usually we work with negative working capital. Like we get paid before we have to pay anything. Because we have 60-day terms on vendors and payrolls every two weeks, but we got paid for something today. So usually we're working with a heavy cash cushion. That sounds like a freaking dream, man. Well, I, that, that's the advantage of residential, I think, yeah. is like commercial, you can go huge. Like mm. you can go huge with residential too, but it only takes like 20 jobs in commercial to go to be huge, right? Versus residential, it might take like 3,000. <laughs> Like, I feel like the thing with commercial, it's just a good balance of everything. Like my commercial is split 70%, I would say with general contractors, but the other 30% of the commercial work I do is directly with the client. So that's when I, you know, that's why I had elevation flooring is for the, the end user work. Cause then you fuck, you fuck around, you, you sign a $400,000 contract with the U S government and it's a 50% margin. So everything you end up like I end up taking all of these commercial jobs at a low margin just to keep everybody busy and to get all my overhead. But what me and my partners will eventually be taking home are those juicy jobs like public. I'm doing a couple public libraries, you know, like those libraries, the bases, the like the jobs that you make, make 10 grand in a day. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff like that. So you have to have the company around for, those opportunities. And when they come, you got to just like take that. Yeah, that's interesting. And so I'm sure you've looked at lines of credit because I mean, that's an interesting operational Mm -hmm. difficulty having to float. So are lines of credit difficult just because of time and business or the type of work or what makes this is, this is the year right now for a line of credit. So like everybody told us three years, once you get to three years, you know, your interest rates going to be so much lower and we can really like sit down at the table and talk, you know, and 
again, getting taxes done this year was, it's just been a pitch. Like I need to just, my accountant fired me for a long story. So I was a little aggressive (laughs) (laughs) trying to get money. (laughs) And then now I and they just suck. So I need a new one. And so I'm trying to do my taxes again. Now this is when I'll go and I'll get the cheap lines of credit and you know, all that. But me, my my partners and I, we've always just hate, like we hate, like, you know, since margins are already tight, when I'm giving off a piece of my margin to m- more money, that's just the worst. That's why we like cash. Like, we have, like, 600 grand in cash that we are using. You know, that's, like, all the profit that we've ever made in the company is still here. You know, so, so like, you say that about your receivables. I have, like, $760,000 in receivables. And I, like, rarely see that in my bank account because I get that, then I get, like, 200 grand in checks, right. and then I pay Amex. That's like $120,000. And then I pay I, my payroll. Payroll is like a hundred grand too. So then that's where your cash flow problem comes at. It's like, okay, here's another 20 grand that I need to buy the new materials for the next job. And that way I'm, I'm calling people. I'm taking 2% discounts. Like I can't, I take 2% discounts from like my clients and stuff all the time for quick pay. And I just hate that. Shit. Yeah. Hate it. Yeah. It, it skins it even further. Yeah. In a tight business. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. This was pretty interesting. And look, here's something I'll, people always ask me this question. Like, how do you find good crews? Like, Ferg, like, how do you get all the work done? So number one, like, this is the juiciest part of the podcast, probably, that anyone should be be listening this far. Number one, finding good crews, partner with the guy, okay? Number one, if you're a nobody, if you're trying to get into a business, a technical ass business, who are you? Who are you to start a business about something if you've never done it before? You know, if you can bring all the other things to the table, that guy who's usually in the business, he's busy as hell. You have to make his life easier and you have to, you have to be his agent the same way a basketball player has an agent. you got to be that guy's agent and start a company. Number two, and I think another more, more way that everybody can, you find experienced project managers, hire project managers for a good price and tell them to bring their crews with them. Okay. If you start going around number three, Number three is you can line up at any other major foreign company at like six o'clock, seven o'clock in the morning with business cards and tell all those guys to call you. Like you'll see them all lined up, go up to every truck, put it on top of the trucks, give it to the guys, talk to the guys, shoot the shit with the guys. You know, you don't need 10 freaking crews, man. You only need like one or two, especially if you're just starting out. So just spend, find these people, vet them and keep them busy. If you keep your crews busy, Again, you'll have good crews. Manpower is something you shouldn't worry about if you have, you know, if you have the setup right. But if you're, we go back to cash flow. Like a lot of these foreign companies in my area, they don't pay same week. So if you if you work for me and you invoice me on Friday, you can get a check next Friday. Usually, people have to work wait two weeks to get paid. But if you can invoice me any amount of money, right? I have had people that invoice me for twenty seven thousand dollars in a week. You know for a huge ceramic job that they've been working on, whatever it might be, but you have to pay that money. And that guy has to know that if ever, ever one time you let that shit slip, it'll just be a stain on your, you know, but if you never let that stuff slip and you pay people for everything you work, you call that dude at two o'clock in the morning. You tell me I have a job for him. He'll go there. He'll be, he'll be there because he knows if he puts it out there, you got his back. Mm-hmm. So you know, crews. It's it's a lot of a person. It's a personal relationship that you should be carrying with your crews the same way that you're carrying with your office staff. Look out for their well being. Vet a lot of them. Bring in as many as you can. You can never have too many. Always bring in as many as you can. 
and the word gets out, man. Once, once you pay good and you treat people good, like I have people who come to my door, they're like, Hey man, I was working on this guy's crew. Um, can I, I'm starting my own crew. Can you give me some jobs? So then I'll start that guy out on a residential project, you know, a, a small little job and I'll see if he does a good job or not. You know, so if, if you can vet people, you know, don't worry about like worry more so about getting the operations to get the crew job done. Like the harder part is making sure that you can get all seven materials in time. You know, the harder part is making sure you don't get fucked on a contract. Like for the last three weeks, I've been lured up putting a lien on this building for 57,000. Like someone backcharged me $57,000 two and a half months after the project was over. Wow. So then I got like a lawyer and I was dealing with all of that, you know, so making sure that your contracts are good. That's the hard part. You know, making sure, making sure you have the money to afford everything is the hard part. Everything else you can solve, man. You just, if you, if you show up here every single day, you don't have shit to do. You can fix all the problems that you have. Again, like, I feel like a lot of people are listening to this podcast and like, you know, are they on the edge of trying to, you know, commit to doing this or just like, you know, if you are truly, if you're listening to this and you're only responsible for yourself and maybe you don't have a kid or something and you don't have anything that you're really, the worst thing that could happen is you'll be broke. You'll be very poor. But I, like, <laughs> again, the, the unknown, the unknown is something you should rely on. And like, seriously, like, like literally two weeks ago, I'm super sad, man. I'm getting that $57,000 back charge. I'm like, it's a major wrench in my cash flow. Like I, it's, it's a huge deal for me. That's only like 20 grand profit. And it's like 37. That's like four. I could run three jobs, four jobs with that one, yeah. you know? And I was really scared about it. But then boom, someone calls me from this place, from this base. And I signed the best contract I've ever signed with anybody. So the best solution to all your problems is always new business. It's always to just wake up, keep your head high, go get more work. As long as you're getting more work in, all these haters, all these people trying to stop you, people trying to fuck you out of money, they just don't even matter. Man, now I'm pumped up to go start a flooring company. I mean, it just takes it takes just a lot of time, man. People yeah. aren't ready to just like, and again, man, I've been through so many days. Like you see, oh, $4 million in business. Oh, he's doing freaking whatever. He's making so much money. Look at these jobs. Like I have had so many dark days, man. So many dark days where I, like I wake up, it's like six o'clock in the morning, you know, and I'm just like, man, I got to go back. Like I was just at the office. I was just there like six hours ago, <laughs> you know, and you just, you got to go back and like, you just got to be there. Like my office, I love my office. I have my Xbox here. I have my laptop here. I have, I have everything here for me to just be here all the time. Like I, I, I want to be here all the time is my office. So just just start your thing, man. Just go do it every single day. Yeah. And just, I don't know. I think everybody can do this. Like, I don't know. Everybody can do this. Anyone can do this. I think so. I think it makes it approachable. And I think it's another good story in like dive before you know everything. And that's okay. And it's like, and if you're first, poor, first things first, like if you're poor and you're trying to start a business, you don't have any money. The, you better be so nice to every single person you come across. You know, if you don't have money, you have no right to not help somebody as much as you can. Especially like if you're, if it doesn't take money and it just takes effort, you know, I can't tell you how many times I have been like, I go do something for somebody. Right. And while I'm there, I meet that person. 
or if I'm just out and I'm out doing something and I meet that one key person that has that big work for me, you know, so you better just like go above and beyond to like that guy that I got the warehouse from, you know, we were, before we got the warehouse, we were just, we were genuinely trying to help him, you know? So if you're out here, like genuinely, like don't fake it, helping people working on your business and asking for help. Like if you're helping people, you can ask for help too. And I always ask for help. The second I don't know something, I'll call a random GC that I'm working with and I'll call the president. I'll be like, Hey man, like, I know you don't know me, but I'm having this issue with a a totally different company than you. And I just, I wanted to see how you would handle this situation if you were me. He's like, dude, what? You know, but then he's like, fuck it. He's like, okay, this is what I would do. But like, sometimes people appreciate that real, that unorthodox approach, not that email approach. Like, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, we can end it on this. No, another thing that I'm—I I mentioned this on the sweaty startup with Nick too. Like, I hear all people just like complaining about like, oh, if I was like, if my parents had money, I'd be an entrepreneur too. Like, if I could just do it, I <laughs> like if like the rich people, this rich man is holding me down. Like, he's if I'm not rich, so I can't do it. The only way to fix things and to make them better is by having more entrepreneurs decentralizing these people from the money they're making guys. The only way that we can get powerful our like younger generation is we have to get money. And the only way to do that is to help each other. Mm-hmm. So really like if you can help somebody just do it. Like I've never heard someone who went broke by helping and donating money and helping people when they needed it, you know? So yeah, just help as much as you can. Like just to help clients, help them help other people make money. Is that no, man? Like I have so many people that I, that call, like, again, I don't say I want to inspire them, but I have had people who call me and like, they're like, I want to start a bit. How do I do this? And I have like three friends who have gone through the process who are doing like very well. And anytime that I hop on a phone call with them, like the other day, my friend was like, man, you're really giving, you're giving him the whole, yeah. Like you're giving him the whole thing on like the secret on how to like do this. You know, or like the way that I, I want to come onto this podcast and produce really good quality stuff, especially on the mental health side of things with people, because like, that's what I needed to hear a lot. If I could have called and heard the right people saying, Hey, like, dude, this is so normal. Like what you're going through right now is normal. Like you're supposed to be stressed out. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that for the longest time. And, you know, just recently I'm trying to focus more on my mental health and, you know, who I am. If, if I want to be this big time dude that I know I'm going to be, I have to be mentally healthy. If I'm out here drowning and I'm like super stressed out, I have no help. I'm doing, you can't be that big time guy. Yeah. Brandon and I were just talking about that the other day, just sort of each stage of your business requires a different you. I think Jim Rome says it best. Like you can only carry what you're strong enough to hold. Wow. I always liked that for any, you know, for as, as our business grows, either through acquisitions or just organically, like if I'm not capable of being the leader that my team needs, or if I'm not capable of enduring the stresses that the next level requires, then I won't be able to hold it. So it's a constant state of, well, how do you manage this? And how do you constantly drive towards betterment? How do you just become better so that you're always working towards your whatever the best version of yourself looks like? Yeah. Like you'll never get more than you can handle. Like up until right now, until you just said that those words, I've always, God's going to never give you more than you can handle. 
but that's like, oh, like somehow it's going to be just like not too much at once and I'm going to be able to handle it. No, the strength to handle it comes from the, the support you have around you. Seriously. And you need to, like the way that you're going to get stronger again is supporting yourself, eating right. Like my eating habits, man, my working out habits, smoking cigarettes and shit, like drinking. These are the type of stuff that can, you know, really hold you back from mm-hmm. just handling that, you know, like you think that, you know, going home and, and drinking every day, like that helps you get through it. But the next morning you wake up and you're not going to go after those problems just as hard, you know? So mental health is absolutely the most important thing for any entrepreneur and in, in his success. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, man, this was awesome. I'm looking forward to diving yeah. back into this and I felt like I got a lot out of it just from what I suspect the electrical company for us is going to look like just because it is such a different thing. So it was cool to hear the perspective. It's a lot like that. It's bid work, long pay, and just what that looks like and you know the demanding needs of that. That was great. That was yeah, awesome. Yeah, I mean, dude, like if you're, you know, again, like this turkey path that I've, I've been talking about with everybody, like people see that on Twitter, again, right, that's like the, on the surface level, man, how do you do that? Like, you know, anyone who's open to doing what I'm doing, again, it's very beneficial for your business two or three years down the line. It's going to take you a year or two to get it all down. It's going to take, it's going to be initial investment. But if you're really ready to do something like that and open a third branch in a country that you can create more about, like you can have more value than you would here, it just happens. So then don't message me after this saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, <laughs> takes, take, if you're not ready to put that work in, don't even try. Really, don't even try to like do turkey or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was awesome. <laughs> All right, thanks. For, yeah. If people want to connect with you, where can they find you? Twitter. Dude, I think, I mean, I try to respond to everybody on Twitter. And especially if you email me twice, or three times, I'll definitely get back to you. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll get to it, right? Yeah. <laughs> F-U-R-K-A-N at elevationflooring.com. Awesome. All right. Thanks for coming on, man. Okay. Awesome, man. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.